Thank you, John. Join me in prayer as we look at this passage here in Jonah 4. Lord, again, we thank you for the wonderful privilege of having your communication given to us in the form of these 66 books. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us. Help us, Lord, to not take that for granted. To see something of you this morning as we look at Jonah chapter 4. At the same time that you would put a mirror up to our souls, that we would see something about ourselves. You would challenge us from this chapter. You would challenge us by the Spirit of God. And that he would do the work that he wants to do in all of our hearts, including me. That we may be more effective for you and serving you. That we may be drawn closer to who you are, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. You ever read that book? It's a children's book about a little boy named Alexander who day, whose day starts out very bad and goes downhill from there. He gets gum in his hair. He gets his sweater wet in the sink. He trips over his skateboard. He doesn't get a prize in his cereal box. And all of that was before breakfast. And he knew he was going to have a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Then he goes to school, and his teacher doesn't like his drawing of an invisible castle. <laughs> he doesn't get a dessert in his lunch bag, and his best friend doesn't want to be his best friend anymore. After school, his mom buys him plain white sneakers instead of the ones with red and blue racing stripes. His dentist finds a cavity in his tooth. There are lima beans for dinner, and he gets soap in his eyes when he's taking his bath. And in frustration, he finally says, I think I'll move to Australia. (laughs) I don't know why that'd be any better. But he's exasperated. Now, if you're like me, you, you can relate to that book because we all have had bad days like Alexander. Days when we feel people have treated us poorly and nothing works out the way we want it to. And by the time we finally collapse into bed at night, we are mad. And everything, and everyone. Well, as we come to Jonah chapter 4, the prophet is thinking he's experienced one of those days. Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day for Jonah. And Jonah was angry, but not at things or even people. He was furious with God. Now, I am told that there's a large sign as you're entering into a city in South Dakota, which says the home of 30,000 friendly people and a few sore heads. <laughs> well, Jonah is one of those sore heads. He is hot. So look with me at Jonah chapter 4, the passage that was just read, Jonah chapter 4, and follow along as I read. Actually, I want to go back to the end of chapter 3, verse 10. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Now, there is God's heart for people. 
He is in the business of mercy to the repentant. And you will recall from last week that there was revival in the last place one would expect, the evil, wicked, violent city of Nineveh. Thousands of people changed their ways because they took God at his words. It kind of gives us hope for a land in which we live in that God can do the same. Chapter 3 is an amazing scene. A great revival. Thousands responding to the preaching of God's word. The dream of every prophet. The dream of every preacher. Right here. Right? Well, notice the very next words. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah. But Jonah was greatly displeased and he became angry. Literally, this reads, he became hot. Jonah was burning up with anger. It's been said that anger is a wind which blows out the lamp of the mind. When anger takes over, we do not think clearly. In all of my years of counseling and pastoring, I have yet to see a conflict resolved in anger. So please... Do everyone a favor and don't make a decision. Don't write that email. Don't text that message. Don't make that phone call. Don't write that letter. Don't post something on your Facebook status in anger. Don't. As it's been said, speak when you're angry and you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. See, when you're angry, you lose the ability to think sanely and to make rational decisions. Jonah's thinking is way off. He is miserable. Jonah was marvelously used by God. Marvelously used by God, and he can't even rejoice in it. Why? Because he is so angry. We miss out on what God's doing. Now, why is Jonah so hot and bothered? Well, we find the answer in verse 2. Jonah prays to the Lord. In essence, he says, I told you so, Lord. I knew this was going to happen. Look what he says in verse 2. Is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And so Jonah is so angry with God, he wishes he was dead. Verse 3 says, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Can you imagine that he is so ticked off that he makes this death wish? Have you ever been that mad? In verse 4, we come to the first of two questions that God asked Jonah. He asked the First question twice, and then he asks the second question at the end of the book that we're going to see. But this first question he asks once here in verse 4, and then he asks it again in verse 9. The first question is, have you any right to be angry? Verse 4. Have you any right to be angry? And Jonah doesn't even answer God's question. Like a middle schooler who doesn't get his way, he storms off to the edge of the playground And he sulks. He does. And we see in verse 5 that Jonah goes off. He sits down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now I remind you that this is a grown man. 
On this journey with Jonah, we have seen him go from protesting to praying to preaching and now pouting. And oh, how we pout. We sulk. I mean, as adults, we disguise it a little bit as we get older, but let's call it what it is. We pout. We whine. We sulk when we don't get our own way. And it isn't pretty. Jonah sits outside the city and he watches what will happen. What is he watching for? Well, I believe Jonah is still hoping that Nineveh gets wiped out. The fact that he's outside the city is telling. And Jonah's mind and Jonah's wishful thinking, he figures that this repentance thing wasn't real and that soon they would return to their wicked ways and then God would bring upon them destruction. He's probably thinking, this was just a sham. It's a show. It's not going to stick. And then God's going to go back to plan A here, and he's going to wipe them all out. I can't wait to see this happen. And he doesn't want to be in the city when that happens, so he waits outside the city. He's still fantasizing about this. Ever done that? Jonah is still trying to get God to come around to his way of thinking. Now, my contention has been, that Jonah never quite gets it, nor does he repent of his stinky attitude in the story we read here. Now, I think he repents in the writing of the book of Jonah. But in our storyline here, he never repents. He never quite gets it. I mean, I mean, he's grateful for God's salvation. I mean, he's grateful for his deliverance from death by drowning. Who wouldn't be? And Jonah does get to Nineveh after given a second chance. He, he does obey and deliver God's message to the Ninevites. yes. Jonah goes where he's supposed to go. Jonah does what he's supposed to do. Jonah says what he's supposed to say. But Jonah is not in harmony with the unfolding of God's plan. It's a warning to all of us. We might serve where we're supposed to serve. We might say what we're supposed to say, yet not really be on board with the unfolding of God's plan. Will you give that up this morning? Will you give up trying to get God and trying to get others to come around to your way of thinking? Will you give it up? And so the pouting prophet here sits and he sulks, fuming in his anger, getting hotter as the day goes on, literally. And Jonah's makeshift pavilion is not protecting him from the heating of the sun. And yet notice this, that God in his graciousness provides for Jonah some much needed shade. Look what it says in verse 6. Then the Lord provided. God provided. God continues to care for his servant Jonah. But more than that, Jonah's about to learn a lesson from a worm. And God uses a little miracle grow on this vine so that it grows rapidly. And it eases Jonah's discomfort. And note these words at the end of verse 6. It provides shade for Jonah. It eases his discomfort. Notice what it says at the end of verse 6. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. Well, isn't that nice? Jonah's finally happy. That's good. Let's be happy for Jonah. He's happy. It's the first time... We see Jonah happy. Well, what makes Jonah happy? Jonah is comfortable. He might even be thinking to himself, God's finally seeing it my way. He's taking care of me as he should. It's been a rough journey. I almost drowned. I was swallowed by a great fish. I was vomited onto land. I smelled pretty bad for several days after that. 
I had to get myself to Nineveh. I delivered a message for God. Physically, I'm beat. Emotionally, I'm spent. Now I know that some of it was because of my own disobedience, but, but God understands that. And he gave me a new lease in life. Aren't God's provisions great? He's loving life. Well, we're about to see another one of God's provisions. Verse 7. It says, but at dawn the next day, God provided. God's providing all through this thing. God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. Now, that's one fast-eating worm. <laughs> but you see, one of God's worms can do that. If God wants to get the job done, he, you know, he can find any worm to do that. And Jonah's losing his shade, and things are about to get hot for Jonah again. And so God even turns up. He provides another thing. He turns up the heat, and he provides a scorching east wind, and the sun is so hot that he's about to get sunstroke to the point of near fainting. Now, Jonah is an unstable man. And again, he asks to die in verse 8. Jonah is so dramatic. It would be better for me to die than to live. <laughs> Why the drama, Jonah? And he's forgotten already. He's forgotten already the provision of God. Amazing, isn't it? How quickly we forget. Reminds me of the story of a mother and her son who lived in a forest. And one day when they were out on a walk, a tornado suddenly surprised them. The mother clung to a tree and tried to hold on to her son, but the swirling winds carried the boy into the sky. He was gone. And the mother began to weep, and she prayed, Please, O oh Lord, bring back my boy. He's all I have. I'll do anything not to lose him. If you'll bring him back, I'll serve you all of my days. And suddenly, the boy toppled from the sky right at her feet. A bit moosed up, but, but safe and sound. His mother joyfully brushed him off. Then she stopped for a moment, looked to the sky, and said, Lord, he had a hat too. Isn't that how it is for us? Think about it. We so quickly forget God's provisions. How soon... Does gratitude turn toward a demanding spirit? Right? God, come on. Keep What are you doing here? And God asked Jonah a second time in verse 9, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? This time Jonah answers him. He says, I do have a right to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. Are you angry with God? Are you angry with God? And God asks, do you have any right to be angry? We answer, you bet I do. And then you list all the ways that God didn't meet your expectations. We thought when we became a Christian that our life was going to run smoothly, and it doesn't, so we're angry. We thought that when we married another Christian, that it would be nothing but bliss, but it turned to blisters, and it crumbled on us, and so we're angry. We thought that when we did the right thing out of obedience to the Lord, that people would fall in line with our decision, and instead they turned on us, so we're angry. We thought that when we served in that area of ministry, or reached out in love to others, or put our whole heart in what we did for the Lord, that people would appreciate it and support us. 
But instead, we saw a side of the Christian community that was ugly and mean and disturbing, and we are angry. And while we may, might be understandable that you're angry, can you really say it is right? That you have a right. Can you honestly say that? Now, I know there's a righteous anger that is outraged at sin, but let's face it, that's not usually the, usually the stuff we are getting hot and bothered about. Now, is it? No, it's the, the color of the carpet that, uh, that chosen by a committee that we didn't like. Or the coffee pot that someone forgot to put on for the fellowship time. Or as I heard about, a major rift between some ladies in a church in the Midwest because the newcomer used Cool Whip on her gelatin salad for the potluck rather than real whipping cream. Now, we can't have that now, can we? Cool Whip? How dare they do that, don't they know? In here it says real whipping cream. Now, we smile, we shake our head in disbelief. But let's take a hard look at the things that we really get angry about or we pout over. I mean, does God give a rip about those things? All the things we get hot and bothered about. Are they the same things that God is angry about? The same things that concern the heart of God? Now, this is where God takes Jonah next. Here comes the lesson from a worm. Follow along as I read, picking it up at verse 10. Verse 10. But the Lord said, now here comes the lesson. Don't miss it. Verse 10. You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Now perhaps you struggle with that yourself. (laughs) You say, turn right, and you use your left hand. But that's not what it's talking about. It's not. It's a figure of speech that's either referring to a moral ignorance of the people who lived in Nineveh, or more likely, I believe it's referring to the children who lived in that great city. And God is saying to Jonah here in verse 10, perhaps you don't care about the adults there. Perhaps you think the adults are all evil and wicked and just a pain in your side. But what about the children? And he even throws in the cattle there. Notice there in verse 10. He says, what about the cattle? I mean, what did the cattle ever do to you, Jonah? You like cows, don't you? Like beef? And God is still trying to get Jonah to come around to his way of loving. So he ends the book with his second question. Look what it says at the end of verse 11. God asks Jonah, should I not be concerned about that great city? The end. Oddly enough, the book of Jonah ends with a question. What kind of ending is that? At first pass, one might even wonder why we have chapter 4. Why not end the book on a very positive note of amazing revival in in Jonah chapter 3? Why chapter 4? Well, unless I miss my guess, we have this chapter because it's a window into Jonah's heart. The book ends with this question... Because it does a little surgery on our hearts without our knowing it. You see, when God measures the person, he puts the tape around his heart and not his head. Where's our heart? This is what it all boils down to right here. This is it. Jonah gets so angry with God 
for acting in a way that he did not understand or approve. Jonah gets so angry with God for acting in a way that he did not understand or approve. Ever been there, Christian? Isn't that the bottom line? We get so angry with God for acting in a way that we don't understand, we don't approve, as if God needs our approval. This morning, not only do we conclude our study in Jonah, but we also close out our series on cultivating a passionate heart. The final question is a fitting one that ties it all together. God asks, should I not be concerned about that great city? The question then is, is what concerns the heart of God that which concerns our hearts? Is it? Now, there are three lessons from a worm to take with you this morning to help us answer that. First of all, the first lesson is this. Ultimately, divine grace cannot be fully understood. Lesson number one from a worm in this story is that ultimately, divine grace cannot be fully understood. Doesn't it bug you sometimes? When someone changes and does the right thing, when you were kind of hoping, secretly anyway, you wouldn't say it publicly, but secretly hoping that they would get what they have coming to them. And they change, and God changes, and we go, ugh. We don't say it out loud. We're not supposed to say that around other people. But secretly, we were wishing that. Are you secretly glad when a successful person goes down? You go, good, yes. Jonah cannot rejoice in God's surprise of grace. He can't. And Jonah is the older brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, remember? What makes that story so powerful is that we can relate to the older son. The younger brother takes the money given to him and he lives it up. I mean, he goes to Vegas and he he blows all the money, he gambles it all away. He shops until he drops, he drinks until he sinks, and stops at nothing in indulging pleasure. The wayward son then hits bottom, and and, and he finally comes to his senses. He swallows his pride, and he returns home, even if it means that he's going to take the lowliest position in the family. He's willing to do that. The father, who left the light on, greets the prodigal son in loving embrace, and he says, Welcome home, son. Let's party. And he pulls out all the stops Because he's so overwhelmed with joy for the one who was once lost is now found. Are you finding it hard to rejoice in what God is doing because you're not getting your way? Am I? You don't think it's fair. Divine grace cannot be fully understood. And the older son doesn't get it, remember? Remember? I have slaved every single day. I have kept my nose clean. I have been a good boy and no one threw a party for me. I guess you have to be real bad to get noticed. I guess being good isn't good enough. It doesn't pay. And the response of the older son often resonates with us. But ultimately, divine grace cannot be fully understood. And the thing is, deep down inside, we really think we're better than those other people. We do. There's so much self-righteous Pharisaism in in the Christian community that it turns my stomach. That is, until I pause to see the Pharisee in me, the self-righteousness in me, 
the Jonah in me. And when it shows up in my life, it shows me that I still have a long way to go in being grasped, grasped by God's grace. As it is with Jonah, God is still trying to get us, around, get us to come around to his way of loving. Ultimately, divine grace cannot be understood. A mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. And the emperor replied, the young man had committed a certain offense and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son doesn't deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. Well, then the emperor said, I will have mercy, and he spared the woman's son. You see, deserving of grace is the ultimate oxymoron. We don't deserve it. We need to extend that same grace and mercy to others. And that's the second lesson from the worm. We get all hot and bothered by peripheral matters that we're missing out on the matter of mercy. We get all hot and bothered about peripheral matters that we're missing out on the matter of mercy. Joseph Stoll put it this way. He said, the temperature is up in the body of Christ. We are mad about a lot of things. We are long on mad and short on mercy. And I am concerned that the unbelieving community has seen and felt our anger, but not always our compassion. They know what we are against, but do they know what we are for? Is there a disconnect between who we say we are and what we are communicating to the unbelieving community? I'm reminded of a sign that rests on a fence that says, no trespassing, absolutely no trespassing. Anyone found trespassing will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Signed, Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> that doesn't work. It doesn't go together. There's a disconnect. Let's be short on mad and long on mercy. Why is it that we are so tolerant of our own disobedience, yet deny to others grace and mercy? You see, a meaningful way to live is to devote ourselves to extending grace and mercy to others, to live a life of purpose that reaches out to love in others. Christ came that we might live that kind of life rather than a life of anger under a dead vine. That's no existence. And we get all bent out of shape over piddling things while there are lost souls at stake. Are we in harmony with God's way of loving? What's his way of loving? Third lesson from the worm is that it's value people over vines. Value people over vines. What is your vine? What is your vine of comfort? What is your vine that gives you pleasure, that brings you happiness? The question then becomes, are you willing to give that up for the sake of a lost soul coming to Christ? Are we more bothered by a home comfort being taken away than the many lost souls that need Jesus Christ? The one born as a baby who came for the sole purpose of dying on the cross to pay sin's penalty in full. Just as God turned from his fierce anger as Nineveh repented, God turned aside his wrath on all people because he satisfied with the payment of sin by crucifixion by the one God-man, Jesus Christ. God, Jesus valued people over his own comforts. What is your vine? Are we valuing that over people? You know, there's some Jonah in me.
All too often, I care more about myself than I do about others. We can care more about the program than the people it serves. We can care more about being right than serving others and reaching the lost. And when we do, our hearts shrivel up, folks. Let's value people over vines that provide us with comfort. What is it we 